going back about six or seven years worth, I think. Our passage today is Romans 8, verses 31 to 39. Now, the handout starts in verse 28 because we discussed verses 28 to 30 last week. But I put it there just to give you a the context or the, uh, the rolling argument that uh, Paul is presenting to us. <coughs> and as is, what I like to do is to have us all read the passage together that we're studying today. We're going to start in verse 31 and then read to the end rather than starting in verse 28. So starting in verse 31, let's read together. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who then shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. As a teacher, you come to a passage like this and you go, what more can I add? All you have to do is read it. It teaches itself. It preaches itself. But, as we are wont to do, we want to kind of dig into it a little bit and, and expand a little on what is being discussed. If you think about it, if Romans chapter 8 was a sermon, verses 1 through 4 is an introduction. Verses 5 to 17 is point number 1. Verses 18 to 27 is point number 2. Last week's passage, verses 28 to 30, is a conclusion. But then today's passage, 31 to 39 is the application. Whenever I'm working with uh, writers and you know, talking with speakers and those who are trying to write nonfiction, either uh, whatever topic it is, they don't like it, but I'll say, that's fine, so what? And I went, well, it's important. I went, so what? And I say, you have to have application because otherwise it's an intellectual exercise. It's a wonderful discussion. It's beautiful theology. And you know, I'm not going to denigrate that. I'm all for theology, obviously, and it's study. But how do we bring it home? And that's what Paul does here. But he does it in the form of questions. John Stott said, if you look at these, these are and I, I'm not sure I agree with his terminology, but he calls them five unanswerable questions. And you see them in verses 31 through 37. Verse 31, if God is for us, who can be against us? Question mark. Verse 32, will God hold back anything from us? Verse 33, who can successfully accuse us before God? 
Verse 34, well, who can condemn us? Because there's a difference between accusation and condemnation. And then verses 35 to 37, who can separate us from the love of God? Now, the way John Stott put it, he says, the apostle hurls these questions out into space, as it were, defiantly, triumphantly challenging any creature in heaven or earth or hell to answer them or to deny the truth that is contained in them. But there is no answer for nobody and nothing can harm the redeemed people of God. So technically there is an answer to every question, but it's not the answer that you would normally think. Because normally when you think of um, conflict or enemy, you think human. Or you might think, well, it's the devil. Well, is the devil going to win in the end? No. There is nothing here. So you start with the if clause in verse 31. What shall we say to these things? Well, what things? The things of that God will work good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. For those he foreknew, predestined in the image of his Son, those who are called, those who are justified and glorified. That's the who. That's the what then shall we say to these things? What things? All of those things. If God is for us, who can be against us? When times get rough, when you get challenged in the workplace or at home or in family with relationships regarding your faith, think of this verse. John Calvin did. He didn't use these phrases, but the way he phrased it, it was his life verse. He landed on this verse as the foundation upon everything and all the challenges that he faced in society and the theology that he was trying to teach. Psalm 56.1 says, In God I will trust, I will not be afraid, for what can man do to me? The early church father, uh, John Chrysostom, was brought before the Roman emperor, and the emperor threatened him with banishment if he were to remain a Christian. And Chrysostom replied, you can't banish me, for this world is my father's house. And the emperor said, well, then I'm going to kill you. And Chrysostom said, well, you can't, because my life is hidden in Christ. Well, then I'm going to take away everything you own, all of your treasures. Chrysostom responded, you can't take my treasure because it's in heaven. And my heart is there. Okay, then I'm going to drive you away from man and you shall have no friends left. Chrysostom said, well, you can't do that for I have a friend in heaven whom you can't separate me from. I defy you, for there is nothing you can do to hurt me. You imagine, would you say the same thing if you were called before the emperor or the president of the United States or the UN council and declared, you say you're a believer? Stop it. And you go, do what you will. Huh. Don't we have examples every week in this world of those who say that? Charles Spurgeon had an interesting thought. He said, if God can be for us, who can be against us? What about the opposite? If God is against you, who can be for you? Obviously, he's putting that in evangelistic terms. 
this is how he wrote it. If you're an enemy to God, your very blessings are curses. Your pleasures are only a prelude to your pain. Whether you have adversity or prosperity, as long as God is against you, you can never truly prosper. Take a half an hour this afternoon and think that over. If God is against me, then what? What will become of me in time and eternity? What's going to happen when I die? How will I face God in the day of judgment? It's not an impossible if, but an if which amounts to a certainty. And I fear, in the case of many who are sitting in this sanctuary today, this will ring true. Imagine if Pastor Jim were to say that on a Sunday morning. There would be some stirring in the congregation. It's not a comfortable thing to say. Because God is love. God would never do that. Really. You don't understand that love means judgment. God is a holy God and cannot abide by sin. Huh. So, I'm going to fix that. No, you're not. You can't. God took care of it for us. God can be for us. Who can be against us? So I return to Spurgeon. And you have to bear with me as I read this. I'll try my best to hold it together because when I first read it, I began to weep. This is how Spurgeon wrote of this verse. It is impossible for any human speech to bring out the depth of the meaning of how God is for us. He was for us before the worlds were made. He was for us, or else He would never have given us His Son. He was for us even when He smote the only begotten and laid the full weight of His wrath upon Jesus. He was for us though he was against him. He was for us when we were ruined in the fall. He loved us notwithstanding all. He was for us when we were against him. And with a high hand were bidding him defiance, he was for us. Or else he never would have brought us humbly to seek his face. He's been for us in many struggles. We've had to fight through multitudes of difficulties. We have had temptations from without and within. How could we have held on until now if He had not been with us? He is for us. Let me say with all the infinity of His heart, with all the omnipotence of His love, For us, with all His boundless wisdom arrayed in all the attributes which makes Him God, He is for us, eternally, immutably for us. For us, when the blue skies shall be rolled up like a worn-out vesture. For us, throughout eternity, here, child of God, is matter enough for thought. Even if you've had ages to meditate on it, God is for you. And if God is for you, who can be against you? Wow. Just meditate on that all through the Advent season. That should be the verse that you repeat over and over and over again. The second question. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? I mean, is he going to help hold something back? I mean, isn't that kind of how you do things so that people will keep coming back to you? Knowing they'll get more? No, it gives it to us all from the beginning. That word spare, by the way, in the verse, he who did not spare, 
In the Greek, that Greek word is the same Greek word used to translate in Genesis 22 when God spared Isaac. So you had Abraham being told to sacrifice his son. Abraham didn't spare Isaac. God did. And that word is the same word here. And those who knew their Greek Old Testament, those who knew their Bible, knew that this illusion was here, that God did not spare his own son. He may have spared Isaac, but he didn't spare Jesus. And gave him for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Now be careful, this verse is used in some prosperity gospel circles. That if you're a Christian, you will be rich. That's how they read it. Because God's going to give us all things. Oh good, I don't want my Toyota anymore, I want a BMW. And God's going to give it to me. No, that's not how it works. But you will hear that quoted here, because that, but that's not what it means. All things. He, it's for us all, all who are called according to his purpose, way up in verse 28. Those who love God. So Vance Havner, in his brilliance, he said, think about the allness of sin. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All. The scripture in Galatians 3.22 has concluded that we are all under sin. All. James 2.10 Whoever keeps the holy law yet offends at one of them is guilty of all the law. And then Jesus says, Luke 13, except you repent, you will all likewise perish. So we have this picture of the allness of sin. But then you contrast with the allness of Christ. Colossians 3.11 Christ is all and in all. Ephesians 1.23 He fills all in all. Colossians 1, 2, uh, chapters 1 and 2, I'm pulling quotes here. He is before all things, and by him all things consist, for in him dwells all the fullness of God, and in him are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. The allness of Christ is contrasted with the allness of sin. One cancels out the other, right here in this verse. God does not spare his own son, but gave him for us all, and then gives us all. Now there's a little interesting twist in the Greek in this verse. So you have, he will not also with him graciously give us all things. That word graciously give we have two English words for one Greek word. The Greek word is charizomai. Uh, I know that just rolled off my tongue, but I'm sure you can spell it just because I said it. <laughs> so, Charizomai. Now, this word right here, charis, is the Greek word for grace. Grace. It can also mean forgiveness, depending on your translation and depending on the context. In some places, charizomai is talked about the fullness of forgiveness, and in other places, it's the fullness of grace. 
Notice how the English translation here is the graciously give. You have the didomai or give. This is the give part. And this is the grace part of the word. So they have used two English words to translate the one Greek word. So you have some scholars who will say this verse can read, how will he not also with him graciously forgive us all things? Isn't that interesting? That certainly turns it away from a prosperity gospel verse into a verse about forgiveness. Now, scholars are equally divided, typically, um, on that. Neither one is right, neither one is wrong. It still has the ultimate same meaning of the forgiveness of sins and the grace that God gives us in having his son take on our sin for him. But just want you to play with that a little bit. As I wrote here, God did not hold back the best that heaven has. He gave us the greatest that heaven has And yet in that, he will also give us the least. He gives us all of it. All of it's access to us. The full power of Christ. How did did one fellow put it? He said, um, we have some in the Christian life, and we want more. And God's looking at us in that prayer going, you have it all. Why are you asking for more? You have it. It's fully accessible to you. Through the Holy Spirit. Verse 33. Question number three. Who can successfully accuse us before God? Verse 33 says, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Now, we're moving into the legal arena. Uh, Paul likes to use legal terminology. This is the accusation of wrongdoing. Not the judgment. This is the accusation. So, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? And I wrote here, so who's the prosecutor in our trial? It's Satan. Satan's the one saying, I know what he did. I was there. I helped him along. I will testify. In fact, why don't I just go up on the stand and testify on the behalf of the sin because I know it happened? Who's going to accuse us? Well, anybody can make an accusation. In fact, it's interesting. We have in our book contracts, we have something called the moral turpitude clause. It's just legal language saying don't do bad things. Because I will usually joke when I teach it, I said, have you turpituted today? (laughs) And we go, I'm not sure. Like, yeah, you probably did. Um, But the idea is that if you do something that could hurt the sale of the book, the publisher can pull the book. In other words, you have someone who makes some horrific moral decision or moral failure, and they're a preacher. And so there has to be the moral turpitude clause. When Tiger Woods had a lot of his problems, he lost a lot of endorsement deals because he had a moral turpitude clause in his contracts. And those, those people canceled that based on that legally. The thing is, anybody can bring an accusation. So you have to be careful in that language. Because I could stand on the, on the, on the street corner and shout out, Tom Blanchard's a sinner! And Tom would go, yeah, so? <laughs> but there are other people going, oh, that's terrible. And then they start thinking bad things about him. Well, I'm making an accusation 
It may not be based on fact, but I can make the accusation. Well, here you have this interesting thing. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Of course, a lot of people then go off on massive tangents about what it does it mean to be elect of God. Let's just set that aside. I brought my can of worms last week. I don't want to bring them out again. Um, the point being is that if you are in Christ, it's the last sentence. It is God who justifies. All the accusations are meaningless. It's already taken care of. It is finished in that regard. It, it almost, it's almost as if you're above the law. I'm not going to say that. You understand the context. In fact, one, one, uh, one writer used the example of a cat burglar in Northville, Michigan lived above the law. And it started with a missing diamond ring. The authorities located the robber, but they didn't arrest him. The state trooper described the thief as small of stature, fleet of foot, and moved with a great deal of stealth. But because of the suspect's age and the first offender status, no charges would be filed because the culprit was a seven-month-old kitten. <laughs> it was a cat burglar. <laughs> but seriously, they, they, they wanted the cat and found the ring in his stomach. It says, you know, it says the kitten was not booked because cats live above the law. For all of us are cats, no. Who own cats, we know that. But as the, the writer put it, he says, this amusing story reminds us of the Christian's position in relation to God's law. In Romans 8, Paul tells of those who will never be accused or tried by the court of heaven. In Romans 4.8, the apostle said, Blessed is the one whom the Lord shall not impute sin. And of such a person, he said, Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? For it is God who justifies. I thought that was an interesting way of thinking of it. In that... The world, the devil, can bring accusation and God goes, it's been taken care of. They're already justified. What's your, what's your beef? Stop wasting my time. Martin Lloyd-Jones puts it a different way. He says, to justify means more, to, more than pardon. It means more than to forgive. As we've seen repeatedly in our study of the first four chapters of Romans, it means that God makes a declaration, a judicial declaration, to the effect that he has not only forgiven us, but that he now regards us as just and righteous and holy as if we had never sinned in the first place. God not only imputes my sin to his son, God takes his righteousness and imputes the righteousness to me. Pretty extraordinary. All right, next question. Who can condemn us? Verse 34, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who, is in, who indeed is interceding for us. So, who is to condemn? Romans 8.1 There is now, for, now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Condemnation, in this legal terminology, is to pronounce judgment. This isn't the accusation. This is the legal standing of condemnation. Declared guilty. So who's going to do that? Well, nobody. Because Christ took it on himself. You will not be condemned because Christ is standing in your stead. As I wrote it here, Jesus was not only the sacrifice or the offering, 
of sacrifice for sin, he was also the priest who offered it. Hebrews 7, 25, Christ is able also to save them to the uttermost that came unto God by him, seeing that he ever lives to make intercession for them. So this verse throws up some fascinating questions, and I'm, I'm going to struggle a little bit with, with you here, a joint struggle. Maybe we'll throw it open to our, our, our group. Well, what is Jesus interceding for? I mean, the imputation of sin, the sacrifice and the death and the resurrection has already occurred. And interceding suggests prayer or suggest speaking in um, or on behalf of. So what does this verse mean? Well, I mean, if, she, if Satan is the accuser of the brother, he's standing there constantly accusing. If Jesus keeps putting out his palm hmm. each time, he accuses Sandy of this thing, and Jesus puts out his palm, it's paid. Yeah. Here, here's the payment. Paid. Yeah. Maybe he's continually being, we're con continually being accused, and Jesus is continually putting the intercession on our behalf. Of and I like how you phrase it, because most people see the word intercession because we use that as a synonym for prayer. And that's why this verse gets misunderstood. It's like, oh, Jesus is fervently praying on our behalf. I'm like, well, wait, he's God already. So he's, who is he praying to? No, it's, as you described, in this context, there's an accusation and a condemnation. So the condemnation is, you are guilty. And Jesus goes, yep, he is. But I'm the one taking the hit on his or her behalf. So in a very simple way, you just blew all the millions of pages I had to read <laughs> right out of the water. Because <laughs> seriously, people were tr just twisting themselves into knots in their expositions or their, their sermons trying to get around the meaning of the word intercede. And I said, there's a one of the great weaknesses of our English language. And even the Greek is very clear. It's a on behalf of. But we have added a meaning to it rather than allowing the fullness of that word to be there. If you will pardon me, I will read a fairly theological paragraph from John Wolverd of the Dallas Theological Seminary related to this. See if you can follow this. <laughs> For those prepared to enter into its wonderful truth, the fact that Christ intercedes for his own in heaven is another guarantee of the security of the believer. While the hope of the believer for eternal salvation rests essentially on his possession of eternal life and the finished character of the death of Christ, it is undoubtedly strengthened by the fact of the intercession of Christ. In his intercession in heaven, Christ sustains the believer and keeps him from many of the spiritual dangers of life. Such intercession pleads the fact that the believer is in Christ and a partaker of his righteousness. The work of Christ in intercession also pledges the ultimate sanctification of the believer in all that is necessary to effect this end. The doctrine of intercession taken as a whole makes clear that salvation is progressive. While the ultimate purpose of God is sure from the beginning in all of its time factors, salvation is a work of God for mankind through Christ, which once began is carried on triumphantly to its conclusion in eternity. Did you follow that? Yes? No? Kind of, so, kind of sort of? So he's trying to say, yes, 
But it's not just this, it's not as simple as just simple intercession, if that's something simple, but it's related to our sanctification. This ongoing process that we as believers struggle, which we saw in earlier in chapter 8. And that ultimately, God will be glorified through this because Christ is at work in us throughout the whole time and we're not going to be falling away. And then he has to bring us back into the fold. We have that security. Steve, is this, is this what John is referring to? Like in this epistle? I write so, you, so that you don't sin, but if anyone sins, we have an advocate. That would be a good... A good yeah, I, I think so. Yeah. One thing I wrote here, and again, this, I don't know if I'm saying something not theologically accurate, but I said, Christ's intercession is written in red. It's his blood that is that intercession for us. I know it's an interesting word picture, and it probably falls apart theologically, but I think you get what I'm trying to say. Christ's sacrifice is, yes, it was once for all, but the ongoing relationship that we have with that sacrifice is ongoing on our behalf. Because the accusations, as Sandy put it, it's not just one time. Satan's up there going, I'm going to get it right once. And I'm going to bring this guy down. And I was talking with a friend of mine in this industry this past week. And we were both really grieving over some well-known evangelical teachers who have walked away from the faith very publicly saying it no longer has any meaning I was just deluded and the whole Christian stuff is just a big joke and you're going I read your books ten years ago my goodness you were anointed by God and now you're this advocate of lostness we and we were just saying we, we don't understand where this is coming from and it's so distressing and it just reminded me of someone's just being hammered and they let the Satan in and it could be he never left that's another discussion for another day alright question number five who can ever separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ? Well, Paul's kind of looking around for any adversary to answer this question, and he can't find one. I mean, I'll tell you, there are times where I'll, I'll go to this verse as as much as I would in verse 31. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation? Tribulation in the Greek means pressure. In fact, they, you get the word pulse from it. That poof, that pressure that's being, that, that's being brought on us. Tribulation or distress. Distress, the Greek word for distress is, means a narrow place. So imagine you're a hiker and you get into this canyon and as you're walking along the path the walls get closer and closer and closer and closer but you know that the beautiful lake's right on the other side of this path but now you have to turn sideways and squeak your way through this path. Yeah, you could go around but it'd take you another 20 hours. So why don't we just, it's just so tight 
And that is this distress. Psalm 118 uses this verse in the Septuagint, uses this word, for my distress I call upon the Lord. The Lord answered and set me, literally, in a large place. Now the ESV translated as, and set me free. But the underlying word means a open space. So the distress becomes wide open because the Lord answered my prayer. Or persecution. Well, we talk about persecution every week. The Greek word for persecution means to pursue. It means to go after someone. That's what persecution is. It's being chased wouldn't be a perfect uh, synonym, but it's that idea of pursuit. Famine, eh, we can kind of figure out what that means. But it means to be in need or destitute or naked. That's just, it's not just that you don't have clothes. It means you don't have anything. There's a difference between not having food and not having clothing. Because if it's 18 degrees outside and you don't have any clothing, you're going to be miserable. I don't care who you are or where you grew up. I grew up in Alaska. If it's 18 degrees and I didn't have any clothes on, I would be cold. You can't get around it. Or, vice versa, if you're in Arizona and it's 120 degrees and you're outside and you don't need clothes on, you're hot. It's not comfortable. Then danger or peril. Or, in number seven, the sword. And he's talking about execution here. This is, this is not just battles or a metaphor. He's talking about the destruction of believers. And then he quotes Psalm 44, 22. For your sake we're being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. And that phrase, sheep to be slaughtered, is over in Isaiah 53. 53, 7, talking about the messianic passage of the sheep being brought to slaughter. That's the same passage that the Ethiopian eunuch was reading when Philip ran alongside and explained it to him. He's going, what is this? And isn't it interesting that Paul is using a verse that talks about sheep, that we're like sheep? Shouldn't you say we're kind of like lions? You know? I mean, doesn't this, this, this whole thing is kind of a victorious passage. And instead he's talking about Animals that aren't exactly brilliant. I mean, sheep are not known for their acumen. They're, they're just followers and, you know, they eat, sleep, you know, whatever. But we're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered? Hmm. Fascinating. And Paul answers all of this with no. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Huh. All right, remember how I said we had one Greek word for two English words? It happens again in this passage. The five words, we are more than conquerors, is one word in Greek. They, they are more than conquerors. They, they just don't play spaces. They just pull the letters. <laughs> well, it's that way in my notes because I didn't have enough space. Who um, pair? Nikao. So, one Greek word, five English words. Who pair? means exceeding, or above, or super. Nakao means conqueror, or victory. 
the root word of nikao is the Greek word Nike. That's where we get, that's where they got the brand name is from the Greek to be victorious. So, who pair or super exceeding, which is why it's so brilliant in the English translation, going all the way back to William Tyndale, who translated this first, he used the phrase more than conquerors, and it has stuck with every translation ever since because it's the best way to describe it. The only other way would be to say, no, in all these things we are super conquerors. And we were like, what? That's kind of weird. This is a Marvel movie. I don't know. That isn't what we meant. But it's extraordinary to put it in context with everything else. If God is for us, who can be against us? In all these things, we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. And as I was, you know, kind of meditating on this and thinking, oh, how am I going to expand on, on this idea, it dawned on me. There's two words that we tend to forget in this verse. Through him. In all these things are more than conquerors because I'm so great. Because I'm cool. Because I did it. I'm a conqueror. And you hear people will say that. And they forget the rest of the verse. We're more than conquerors through Him who loved us. Not what we did. It's what He did. And it changes the whole context, the whole <laughs> meaning, the whole takeaway. Yeah, it's, it's wonderful to think, if God is for us, who can be against us? And we're more than conquerors, which means we can live the victorious Christian life. And the answer is yes, you can. But not through your own effort. It's only through Him, through the power of the Spirit who grants us that power and that ability. You're attacked by Satan? Hey, you win. You're betrayed in business? You still win. We are more than conquerors through Him. And then Paul adds to this. He says, I'm absolutely, thoroughly, and utterly convinced. That's what that basically means right there. He says, oh, I'm sure. Well, it's kind of like, let's stop there a second. What do you mean you're sure? No, it's, there's not even a question here. I am absolutely convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor present, nor things present, or things to come, or powers, or heights, or depths. Okay, here's a question. Why does Paul start this litany with death? Why? Well, that's our biggest enemy. I mean, our greatest fear as human beings is death. Absolutely. It is the greatest separation that we could even imagine. I wrote here, it's the ultimate separation, the greatest foe, our greatest fear, that fear of death. About, goodness, how many years ago now? 40? 40-some-odd years ago, a uh, sociologist, psychologist by the name of Ernest Becker wrote a book called The Denial of Death. Secular book, I had to read it in a theology class. Because his premise was that 
the underlying uh, root of all humanity's difficulties is their fear of death. That if you don't fear death, everything just kind of works its way out because you're not afraid or living afraid. It's actually somewhat of a rather Christian concept if you read 1 Corinthians 15. Um, and ironically, in Psychology Today magazine, when Ernest Becker was on his deathbed, another, another writer, came, journalist, came and interviewed him and said, so, Dr. Becker, this is it. Do you believe what you wrote? I mean, that book won a Pulitzer Prize. It just was everywhere. Very, very influential, even to today. And Ernest Becker said, oh, absolutely, I have no fear at all. But he also had no belief in the afterlife either. It was just blackness. Just nothing. And so you realize, oh, you were so close. But you intellectualized it. You didn't look to faith for the answer. Paul starts with death, but John 11:25, Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And his next sentence is what? Do you believe this? Come on, Jesus, don't, don't play that game with me. That's not fair. Yeah, do you believe it? The next thing he did was raise Lazarus from the dead. So he's asking the people. He's saying, I am that resurrection. If you die, you don't die. If you believe in me, do you believe this? The next thing he goes, which is kind of ironic, granted he, he's trying to do contrasts, so we, we, you know, and he's a writer, so he's making, uh, making metaphorical points, hyperbolic points, if you like. But life, how does life separate? Well, doggone it, we have kids in New York and Chicago and Tucson. We're separated from them. They're not next door. They're not living in our basement, if we had a basement. Um, of course, that might not be a good thing. Uh, anyway, but we miss them. We're separated from them. Another thing that separates us is age and health. There are people who have not been able to attend this class for two years because of health. We have people we still pray for who are now attending a different church because it's closer and more, not, not as stressful for them to get there because of their health. It creates separation. The economy, relationship stress. I mean, all, all these things, that's life, creates separation. Then he has angels or rulers. Now, the Greek word for rulers is the Greek word arche, A-R-C-H-E, which means first ones, or rulers. Now, people have struggled with this, saying, is he talking about the monarchy? Is he talking about the emperor? Well, if he is, then why is his contrast angels? That wouldn't make sense. So most have felt that what he's really talking about are principalities. Mm -hmm. So you would have angels and demons, or angels and those who are nefarious, because there would be a contrast. Now, do angels separate us? Again, I think he's speaking with hyperbole. I wouldn't, I wouldn't know how an angel would separate us, but the Holy Spirit knows. I don't. Uh, it's the person, but I, I, I'm. It's a good point. That's just a small part of 
Oh, that's a good point. It, it takes the eye off of God. That's a good point. In, Col- in Colossians 2.14, it says, Christ nailed it to the cross, disarmed the rulers and authorities, and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. It's that same word, archaic. Then the present and the future. Notice he didn't bring up the past. Past is done. It's over. But what about now? What about tomorrow? And we tend to forget that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. We're the ones that are changelings. We're the ones that get all wrapped up into, oh, I don't know what's going to happen next week. I'm probably the worst. I stare at my spreadsheets and accounts receivable all the time. Is that money going to come? Like, stop it already. I've got you. Trust me. It talks about powers. That's the Greek word dunamis for dynamite or energy. Definitely speaking of spiritual powers. I wrote here, these are spiritual powers that are arrayed arrayed along our travel route like roadside bombs. We can't see them, but they're there. And we have to be on the lookout. If you talk to any soldier who served in the Middle East when roadside bombs became the thing, they began to notice and look for the signs of how where they were disguised. And they could stop, disarm it, and then keep moving. It would slow them down, but it was either that or keep going and hope it didn't go off. But they started to see the signs and learned. And I say that's a bit like the spiritual life, the Christian life. Things that you know you shouldn't go down that road, you shouldn't turn that don't go there. You know what's going to happen. Neither height nor depth. <laughs> Psalm 139, 7-10. Put that in the margin of your Bible next to this verse. It reads, Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea... Even there your hand will guide me and your right hand will hold me fast. And then Paul says, and anything else I haven't mentioned? He says, or anything else in all creation? In other words, he stopped trying to come up with stuff saying it's all, none of it can separate it. In book contracts, there's a clause for what the publisher can control in the dissemination of the book product in anything that has been invented or not yet invented. It's actually in there because publishers back in the 60s and 70s and early 80s did not have e-books in the contracts and has created total chaos for old contracts. Now they say, well, it includes digital media and anything possibly invented. And I jokingly said to them, so does this include satellite distribution? They went, yes. Does this include paper airplanes off of cliffs? Yes. And they were just like, it's anything you can possibly think of We have it covered and we have the right to sell it that way. Okay, whatever. I get it. Nothing in all of creation. (laughs) There's just nothing that's going to separate you from God. So I'll end with a word from Corey Tenboom. Cora Tenboom was in the Nazi death camp in Ravensbrück, and roll call came at 4.30 every morning. 
Most mornings were cold and sometimes the women would be forced to stand without moving for hours in the bone-chilling pre-dawn darkness. Nearby, there were punishment barracks where all day and far into the night would come the sounds of cruelty, blows landing in regular rhythm and screams keeping pace. But Corey and her sister Betsy had a Bible and at every opportunity they would gather the women together like orphans around a blazing fire and read Romans chapter 8. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Corey wrote, I would look about us as Betsy read, watching the light leap from face to face, more than conquerors. It was not a wish, it was a fact. We knew it, we experienced it minute by minute in an ever widening circle of help and hope. Life at Ravensbrook took place on two separate levels. One, the observable external life grew every day more horrible. But the other, the life we lived with God grew daily better, truth upon truth, glory upon glory. That is Romans 8. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. The extraordinary, simple expression of a few words can just send us into the heights of our praise and our thankfulness and our belief in the future glory that you have promised to us. It makes our daily frustrations seem so insignificant. Thank you, Lord, for this reminder and for the hope that we live together. In Jesus' name, amen.